Hey, Game Church podcast listeners. This is a very odd episode. I actually don't know what happened, but it's my fault, probably, because on my, I'm the one who does the recording. And on my end, uh, there's a weird sort of clipping, not clipping, but like a clicking sound. And sometimes there's like a snoring, almost snarling sound that happens, basically, on my end of the microphone. Sometimes you can hear me ask questions. Other times, you can't hear me say anything. The whole thing is crazy. We suspect demon possession here at Game Church. I'm pretty sure that my microphone was possessed by a demon. But uh, either way, this is the outcome. Listen, if you want, if you can handle it, and if you can't handle it, I totally understand. We've actually already recorded next week. It's going to be in quality a lot better and it's a very cool guest that we got to have on that you'll find out next week but uh definitely a very fascinating discussion uh but this one's fascinating too and that's why we wanted to run it uh so brendan says a lot of things despite the fact that you will not know what he is responding to sometimes (laughs) so uh enjoy and uh see you next week hopefully Church Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Richard Clark, the managing editor of GameChurch.com, and I'm here, as usual, with Drew Dixon. Drew, what are you at GameChurch.com? I am the editor-in-chief of GameChurch.com. Which means what exactly? Which means I... I can kind of like overturn things that you say, basically. <laughs> cool. No, yeah, uh, no, it just that's means true. I kind of, it just means I kind of read the website, but, um, for all of our listeners out there, Rich is basically like another of me. We basically share the editorial responsibilities at Game Church. So. Okay. Well, that's very kind. So we're also joined, <laughs> we're also joined here, uh, by a special guest as usual. This week we have a game critic, uh, Brendan Keo, Brendan, thanks for joining hey, us. Thank you for having me. So you're known for a lot of things, I think, <laughs> but we're going to start uh, with the thing. Um, so tell us a little bit about this book you wrote that people may have heard about. Right, so I guess back in, well, what year are we in, 2014? It must have been like 2012, I wrote a book, Killing is Harmless, um, about the military shooter, Spec Ops the Line. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really planning on writing a book, um, I just kind of started writing about this game because I find, found it interesting in a kind of moment-to-moment kind of way. Started writing, realized I had a lot of words and decided I'd written a book about a video game and then it kind of got popular, probably um, not just for its content but because not many people had seemed to do something like that before, um, as far as I know anyway. Um, that's a book I wrote. So, And it and it seems to have, like, it's interesting, we had... um. Uh, what is his name that's writing the book about Unreal on... Uh, Alan. Alan. Alan, yes. Sorry, I I feel awful. I blanked on his name. We had Alan (laughs) on recently, Alan Williamson, and uh, he's writing a book on Unreal. And anyway, it just seems like your book has kind of inspired a lot of people to write interesting things about video games, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I I think it did a little bit. I don't want to get, like, 
I don't, I don't want to take too much credit. I'm sure plenty of other people had already had ideas to do things. But yeah, um, Alan Williamson has his Unreal book, um, which I think is already out. It's one of the 5 out of 10 website. That's um, right, yeah. And then, yeah, Boss Fight books have been releasing all their stuff. Um, a couple of other people have released independent stuff. So um, I, like, I don't know how much I can take credit for that, but it is exciting to see um, a whole bunch of people just kind of independently releasing this stuff, not just waiting for, you know, I guess the old guard publishers to take to get interested in it. Yeah, I think for a long time people just assumed like the most you could really write a, about a game was maybe like an article series, like maybe like like there was the letter series that kept happening for a while. Um yeah. and and that was like the really in-depth way to talk about a game. And I like how this book has inspired a lot of people to think really deeply not just about writing about. It's not like games have grown into this ability to be talked about in such depth because a lot of these books are about older games. Um, So it's really cool to see how like, I feel like criticism itself is growing um, as a medium in that way. Yeah, definitely. I remember when I was like probably an undergrad doing like film studies and literature studies and all that kind of stuff in my arts degree, going to like, um, I guess like niche kind of arty kind of bookstores and just seeing like the culture section, quote unquote, and they'd have like mm-hmm. hardcover books on different films. So, like there'd be a whole book fair on um, a Rolling Stones album and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And just always, always looking for like a video game book because I just always assumed it had to be one there somewhere. Yeah, uh, it's kind of nice. Like it wasn't a deliberate thing at all. But kind of realizing in hindsight, I kind of just got sick of not there not being any books there. So I just kind of made one that could be there, um, sure. which is kind of nice. Realizing I kind of did that. Yeah. Cool. So um, right now you're not working on a book. You're working on. Uh, uh, kind of a video series do you want to what is what is that about um yeah so i guess this is um it's kind of an experiment to see if it's actually interesting i've never been someone to watch let's play videos or anything like that i've always yeah. i guess kind of found the idea of sitting there and watching someone else play a video game <laughs> not particularly interesting um but at the same time i've always had a kind of soft spot for the modern warfare trilogy the mm-hmm. call of duty games um which has always been hard to explain to people because like there's a lot i find quite i guess revolting about those games it's kind <laughs> of um the kind of like militarism and like the Western good guys versus Eastern bad guys kind of simplifying of things. Yeah, um, and almost like um, in a lot of ways, I guess in my mind, those games feel opposite of the very thoughtful treatment you gave to Spec Ops, you know? Like yeah, yeah. Spec Ops feels like sort of the anti-modern warfare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a lot of ways, it kind of just says, this is why this kind of glorified depictions of war are so messed up. I totally agree mm-hmm. with that. Um, but I guess what I really enjoy about the modern warfare is just purely kind of, um, it's almost purely from a like formal design kind of thing. I don't like the stories they're telling, but I like how they tell the story. There's a lot of really interesting kind of moment to moment level design, like how it kind of forces you down a certain corridor to frame yeah. something happening in a certain window. Um, or the way it kind of just keeps swapping the player between different characters. Um, as well, it's no big deal. It never ties you down to a single character. You can just be like jumping around like five or six characters in a single game. Um, but you're always looking from somewhere. It's never like a third person cutscene at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I guess it does a lot of interesting things from the storytelling perspective, even if it's not using that stuff to tell an interesting story. Yeah. Um, and I could never figure out how to write about that stuff in a really fine grained way. So I thought I would try just playing the games and talking over top of them. Um, which, and, and still, I'm not sure if I would sit around watching myself, but <laughs> other people seem to be enjoying them or at least maybe morbidly curious as to why the heck I even enjoy these games. Yeah. Um, and I've been trying to fund that using Patreon, which is, or Patreon, Patreon. I, I don't know, I've never had to say it out loud before. Um, 
Yeah, you said um, Patreon earlier, and I immediately was like, I've been saying this wrong the whole time, but now I don't. I don't know. <laughs> it's probably the internet. We never have to say anything out loud anymore. Um, <laughs> but um, but yes, yeah, so I'm trying to use that, and people are giving me a couple of dollars every video, and I don't know. It's kind of nice to actually get paid to do something like that. Yeah. So yeah, to sure. to check those out, you can go to Patreon.com or Patreon.com if you prefer. <laughs> Uh, slash brko, so that's K E O G H. Yeah, that's we'll it. put that. In the, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, cool. So I wanted to get to the real meat of this podcast, which is that we we always like to talk to a person about their life and their personal beliefs and stuff like that. Uh, it's always fun when we do these shows with people we have we have like a, a personal relationship with already. So we've. We've met you a few times. Not met you. We've we've gotten to know you over a couple of years at GDC. Yeah. For, um, for the sake for the sake of journalistic integrity, <laughs> we, yeah, should, we should point that out. We should point out that uh, Brendan um, bunked up in our room at GDC. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot. I did. Yeah. 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 So Brendan knows all of my secrets, yeah, and he knows all about my uh, judging bear that I sleep with at night. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, my fiance just looked at me very judgingly. And I nice. So you can, re- something together. you can relate to that then. So um, <laughs> one thing that I feel like I picked up on, and I think most people pick up on when they hang out with you, is that you're a very reserved person. Um, you don't <laughs> you don't emote a lot. <laughs> no, I'm I'm far less emotive in real life than I am on yeah. the internet. Yeah. Um, which I put down to this is probably the silliest thing. I feel like. That purely comes down to the fact one of the first people I followed on Twitter was Ryan North, the um, web web comic web cartoonist, web mm. comic drawer writer who does dinosaur comics, which are these dinosaurs oh, that are yeah. always kind of like shouting at each other. They're always very uh-huh. excited about it, and he's always excited <laughs> about everything. So uh-huh. I feel like I a lot of my Twitter etiquette from Ryan North, and I overuse exclamation marks. So then people meet me in real life, and I don't really use emotions at all, um, and people get very confused by that. Um, <laughs> That's my excuse, anyway. So um, I wanted to ask, like, are you are you reserved? And like, I feel like it's hard to get to know you in real life. And I wanted to ask, <laughs> like, are you uncomfortable talking about yourself? Are you uncom like because we're about to do that? Are you are you uncomfortable talking about your own sort of deep uh, foundational beliefs, that sort of thing? And if so, why? <laughs> that would be easy <laughs> questions. Um, <laughs> Um, I don't think I am. Like, I don't think I ever really bring them up myself at all. Um, I feel like if someone asks, I'm probably happy enough to talk about them. Um, like, I don't know, I'm probably like half super like cliche Western man doesn't speak about his emotions at all mm-hmm. uh, or background web. But like, but then you look at the stuff I write, I think, and I'm like kind of the exact opposite there. Um, yeah. So that's true. I, I think mostly my life just hasn't been interesting enough to be indulgent enough about it. It's been very. <laughs> Yeah. It's been quite uneventful so far. Cool. Well, thankfully you knew what the show was about when we asked you to come on. So it's not like we're blindsiding you. Um, no, this is my fault. I wanted to clarify that <laughs> for the listeners who may not have that context. But um yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about like what um how you grew up and how you were raised in terms of your religious and, and philosophical beliefs. Sure. Um uh, let's see. I was born in like 1986 in Sydney, um, in that city in New South Wales. Um, Australia has like seven states. We don't really have big state identity unless sport is involved. So like being from a certain state doesn't really mean as much here. Um, anyway, I was born in Sydney, moved around a lot as a kid. 
Um, my dad was an engineer with some, um, I didn't even know if a company was called when it was in New South Wales, but essentially he built dams like that, gave water to the country. Um, so he, so we, I lived in like small rural towns growing up mostly, um, moved around every five years or so. Uh, both of my parents are from pretty strongly Catholic families. Um, like, I don't know if I were like different versions of Catholic. I know like dad's was probably much more Irish Catholic and I think mum's was probably more. I don't know, Roman Catholic, Mediterranean Catholic. I'm probably like totally generalizing here, but they always seemed pretty similar growing up. Um, so, so I went to Catholic schools, um, all the way through school, primary school and high school. Um, did you go to, did you go to mass regularly? Um, up until like 15 ish, I guess. Um, yeah, like for my childhood, we did every Saturday night. Um, Saturday night instead of Sunday morning, mostly just getting three boys because I had two brothers for most of my life. Um, Getting us up Sunday morning to go to church was unlikely to happen, so we always went to Saturday evening church. Um, I don't know if that's a thing in America. Here, like most churches, will do Saturday evening mass and Sunday morning mass. Um, I don't know. Is I that the same? Is. I mean, yeah. I think it. Yeah, I think so. I think it depends on the church, maybe. Yeah. Right. Um, it's pre- it's pretty common here, at least you know for most churches. Mum got pregnant with twins again, so like I already had two brothers at that stage. And then my parents are probably looking forward to having all their kids out of school. Then all of a sudden they have two more kids. Um, and I think they probably just got too kind of distracted and sidelined with going to church anymore. You know, mum and dad had three kids, two in high school, one going to high school soon, and probably pretty ready to have no kids. And suddenly two more boys appear, and suddenly five boys in the house. Um, so life probably got way too hectic, and they stopped kind of you know, forcing us all to go to church um, around the same time. So I'm like 15 and um, my brothers are like 14 and 12. We're probably all reaching that kind of teenage years where we're probably essentially now kind of like not super religious family, but like go to church every weekend kind of way, probably started acting out and started. Well, I for one certainly stopped. I don't know if I could say stop believing, but at least started thinking critically about the fact I didn't actually believe maybe. Um, so I stopped being, I essentially stopped being interested in church. If I, could say I ever was interested. Um, um, so right, so probably from like 15 onwards, probably stopped going to church, but still um, was at a Catholic school until grade 12. Um, so we still had like school mass um, several times a semester, you know, at the start of semester or around Christmas and Easter and all that. Um, so I feel like I'm still quite familiar with all those kind of traditions and beliefs, at least in the Catholic church. Um, so since then, probably spiritually and philosophically, I guess most of my um, thoughts probably lean quite far to the left. Like I'm probably, I would say, quite a progressive leaning person. Maybe not radically or anything, but um, especially in like probably the last five or six years since I started um dating my now fiance Helen, probably moved a lot of my stuff from kind of just generic lefty who thinks equality is good to more I don't know about radical, but more probably actively feminist, inclusive kind of person. Uh, Quite a lot. Like, I think I was already leaning that way. Both my parents were quite progressive people as well. Like, I think now both vote for um, the Greens, which in Australia is kind of like the left of and the left main party. Um, so, like, even though my dad's kind of like, you know, kind of upper middle class businessman and white and everything, he's still kind of quite progressive. Um, so I probably got a lot of that from them, a lot of my politics. But I think Helen probably certainly concrete a lot of, probably made me a lot more active in a lot of my political leanings, like in terms of, say, Australia's terrible refugee policy um, or things like um, 
gay marriage and gay equality and feminism and all those kind of things definitely made me much more active in it than rather just being before that it would have been if someone asked me what is your feelings on this i would say this is what i think is good whereas now i would go to protests and write really angry tweets um and be much more active about this um so that's kind of where i am now i guess i'd probably say i'm pretty squarely agnostic now um i would say like kind of in my later teenage years and early teens uh, sorry early 20s probably was much more kind of deliberately consciously kind of atheist like much more this is why god doesn't exist or whatever um these days i've, I've probably mellowed out a bit and now i'm like look i can't prove he doesn't exist and it doesn't necessarily influence my life either way if other people believe in a god that it doesn't affect not a problem like i'm not going to be intolerant of people who want to believe whatever they want um so so i i guess he doesn't probably influence my life yeah in any way it's, inter- it's pa- interesting to me oh sorry go ahead no no, no please go I was going to say, you said that around like 15 or 16 in there, somewhere in there, that you kind of sort of acknowledged that you didn't believe, as opposed to like coming to, or like sort of coming out of belief, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is, is that how you would describe it? Like, do you ever remember like genuinely believing um, in the, in like, like in, you know, in Catholicism and that sort of thing? Maybe not like gen, um, probably not like actively, not. Like, I don't think I ever, um, like truly kind of consciously actively, I guess, believe there was a God there that I would go and talk to or, um, feel connected with. It was probably much more just, I'd never probably stopped to think about, um, you know, what I'd been told in church and what I'd been told in religious class, religion class. Um, yeah. Like I always just kind of took it for granted that, you know, that was true and other religions therefore must be wrong or whatever. And it was probably around 14 or 15, I guess. And I, I couldn't say what the trigger was. Where I probably just had a moment, I'm like, wait a minute, like, I'm only presuming that because that's what people have told me. Um, what actual, I guess, proof of this do I have? What kind of evidence? And then I probably, like, I didn't go and read, I don't know, for God delusion hadn't been written yet, but I didn't go and read any books like that or anything. I probably just started kind of, and it, it would have just definitely like gone parallel with me just acting out as a teenager and wanting to not, um, and just wanting to rebel or whatever. So. Having gone to church my entire life and gone to Catholic schools my entire life, it's a pretty easy thing to rebel against, I guess. It was, it was probably the most obvious thing to rebel against, um, which is probably how, why I um, swung so wildly to the other direction. For quite a while, I was probably like one of those kind of atheists I probably can't stand now who are just like super kind <laughs> of pretentious about it and super kind of um, anyone who believes anything is clearly wrong and deluded. And it's like, but people like, I don't know, I'd, I'd probably call them like fundamentalist atheists. Um, mm-hmm. just like, you know, they're just like, I, I guess there's the difference between not believing in anything and believing in nothing. Um, so, so I would probably say these days I much more don't necessarily believe in anything. Like there might be something out there, but you know, it doesn't have an effect on my life. I don't think as opposed to consciously actively identifying as someone who is certain there is nothing out there. Like again, certainly back when I was like probably 15 to 18, if that would have been like, uh, that's so stupid, like, you're clearly deluded or someone's brainwashed you or whatever, like, back when I was a teenager or whatever. Um, now, certainly not, like, I was just me being, you know, a cliche, arrogant 17-year-old dude. Um, but, um, no, it's like, no, like, I'm, I like to think I'm quite, I uh, tolerance definitely the wrong word, but, like, um, I'm trying to think of a word that just sounds, doesn't just sound apathetic. No, I can't think of one. Yeah. Accepting. That's a good enough. Um, like, I think I, I don't care, I guess. Like, if people, I'm, like, people can believe in whatever they want to believe, and that's absolutely fine with me. I know plenty of great Christian people, like, used to, for example, gave me a bed, which was very nice. Um, 
Patrick's a great guy. Um, and yeah, most of my parents, you know, brothers and sisters and pe- my grandparents were all quite religious and remain so. Um, the only time it becomes attention with me is when it becomes this kind of, when it becomes a crutch for, I guess, discrimination of one kind or another. Um, so the various ways um, religion becomes a crutch or institutionalized religion, I guess, can become a crutch for um, kind of maintaining a status quo that just um, benefits those who already have certain privileges. So like, you know, straight people or men or Westerners. So when like religion becomes a, um, a crutch for not like, you know, accepting homosexual people as having being able to have loving relationships, like not being able to adjust to that. Um, but even then, I don't know if I blame the religion, but I certainly blame maybe institutionalized religion that knows it has a certain stronghold on certain people by making sure they don't like certain people. And then I would probably get angry about that. Um, but I don't, but again, I wouldn't say I'm just fully against institutionalized Christianity because at least here in Australia, they do a lot of, there's certainly a lot of issues with, you know, um, um, being against gay marriage and all that, but they also do a lot of great work with, um, refugees here. Whereas so, so in Australia, we have this big issue with lots of, um, people from Sri Lanka and the Middle East trying to come here as refugees and asylum seekers and our government just kind of locks them up in these essentially illegal offshore jails indefinitely, like kind of like Australia's own Guantanamo Bay um, for people that aren't even suspected terrorists. It's just we'll lock you up so that other people don't come rather than accept, accepting them into the community. And it's just this incredibly racist, incredibly vile um, policy Australia has. Um, and I think the Catholic Church, but definitely the Anglican Church here, have been really active in saying this is wrong um, and getting their church communities together and saying this isn't compassionate, this isn't what God would do. Um, so I have a whole lot of respect for those churches who do that. So, so I don't want to say anything like all Christians are homophobic or sexist or anything because that's clearly not the case. Um, but I do certainly take an issue with using religion as a crutch for um, being indiscriminate when yeah. or discriminating against. But that said, I know plenty of loving, great religious people, Christian and other religions who are able to take a religion that maybe in its text or whatever says things like you shouldn't love these kind of people who are still able to um, adjust their spirituality to be more encompassing and loving of different people. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who are able to do that. I guess where I draw the line, if I can even say that's what it is, is when people start, I guess of any faith or lack thereof, go out of their way to consciously negatively affect somebody else's life that they're trying to voluntarily leave. Mm, so like yeah. so like I think yeah. me going out of my way to go and tell Christians why God doesn't exist is would be as absurd and obnoxious and rude as um a Christian person going out and telling a loving gay couple why they're living in sin or mm-hmm. um or whatever other example. I guess that's sorry the cliche example I keep going back to it. Um but but, like, so, yeah oh are you finished? Sorry. <laughs> no, I think I was just muttering. Please go. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was just going to say, um, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think nowadays it's so much easier to, to go out of your way to do that with, yeah. like, Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, totally. You know? Like, oh, yeah. we can go out of our way and tell someone that we disapprove of their lifestyle or 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 whatever. Um, you know, those examples you gave are all ones that I think are pretty common. Um, but... You know, I think social media sort of exacerbates that problem. And, um, you know, and I I think, like, for me as a Christian, like, uh, at least I try try to be really mindful of, like, you know, the things that Jesus says, like, guide me in the way that I 
carry myself on social media and stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, and like, like we talked about with Alan Williams and, you know, he said, just don't be a, a jerk. He used another word, but, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, like, I think that's a really, actually a really like biblical thing. Like I really, Jesus would be behind that. Um, love one another. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you know, and, and, and we do, like, I do want, like, I think, I think Christianity is, is true, right? Or I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't think it was true. And I think, and I want other people to know that I think it's true, but, um, like, that's the worst way to go. Like, the worst way to go about it is to find the, the thing that, where we disagree on and then, then, like, um, try to make someone else's life sort of worse because of it. Yeah. But, but we're doing that, but people are doing that, <laughs> Anyway, I don't have a good answer to it other than to say, hey, guys, stop doing that. Yeah. No, I guess there's a difference between this is why I believe in Christianity and this is why you're wrong for not believing in Christianity. I guess that's, yeah. I guess that's the difference, I would say. So, like, so yeah, I, like, I have several friends who are probably quite devout Christians. Um, like, certainly not the majority of my friends, I guess just because of my political leanings and whatnot, I probably tend to run in more agnostic or atheist circles. Um but yeah, but like for friends that are really Christian, but are still managed, but still manage to be super accepting of other people. Like I have nothing but the highest respect for, because they're able to balance those two things. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's yeah. sorry, you go. It's not an easy balance, you know. No, I, because I, uh, because we because like we because val- like any human being, we all value relationships, and so I guess actually something I think about on Twitter with because I like honestly. Um, I'm in this weird place <laughs> on Twitter where, like, half the people I follow are really devout Christians, and then the other half are really devout, or not necessarily devout, but very, like, pretty strongly, like, atheist or agnostic. Yeah. And so, um, you know, um, that's sort of, like, the best and the worst thing about social media. Yeah. Um, is I get to hear from all these people that I wouldn't hear from if I lived in a Christian ghetto, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know what the... What the, what the learning point there is, other than it's really I think the, the human mind just kind of makes it very easy just to like put everything into binaries like good evil right wrong you know male female like just straight gay like you can just you can make all these binaries and everything nature culture and like you know philosophers that have written for decades if not centuries about the problem of all those binaries but regardless of how consciously you know you shouldn't like it's still kind of something you got to constantly remind yourself of, I guess. Um, but like, what do you say about evangelizing? I guess like, that's, a, that's a good, important point. It's kind of easy for someone like myself to forget is that like, it's not just a matter of living and, let, living and let living if what you personally believe in makes you think you have to, I guess, I might be using the wrong word, sorry, but I like, have to save other people or rescue other people from not believing that thing. I guess that's where you get this kind of... Hey, we interact yeah. with that world. But I guess the way you do things and say Christ in pop culture and... Game church. Game church. But I'm <laughs> this one. Uh, I think if you do those, you're very much, I think, like, here it is. Like, you just kind of present it. And again, it's, I don't feel like you're trying to shove it down my heathen throat or anything. But, you know, <laughs> it, it feels very approachable and accessible. And, and, and I guess, like, purely maybe strategically, that's probably also the most successful way you're probably going to evangelize to an agnostic or an atheist is go... Look, I'm just saying this is just here's a thing, here's the gospel, rather than you're going to hell unless you read this, I guess. But Yeah. Yeah. Point. Huh. Yeah. Um, cool. The 
The Game Church Podcast is sponsored by Christ and Pop Culture, which exists to acknowledge, appreciate, and think rightly about the common knowledge of our age through thoughtful, long-form articles, challenging blog posts, and a beautifully illustrated bi-weekly online magazine at ChristandPopCulture.com. You can also check out the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast in iTunes to hear our talented contributors reflect on the latest in pop culture three times a week. Um, what I might also say there, sorry, like, I remember like the, the Catholic schools I went to growing up, especially the high school, um, I think I was, I was kind of like they weren't really kind of, um, uh, I don't know a better word, sorry, but they weren't like super fundamentalist kind of Catholic schools. Like there are some schools you go to in Australia where like if you do science there, quote unquote, that doesn't count as science for university and stuff. It wasn't one of those schools. It was a really kind of um, critically minded kind of yeah. um, Catholic school. So like we do study of religion in grade 11 and 12. And, like, we'd learn the history of the Bible as an actual artifact. So, like, which scholars in which centuries wrote which parts of it um, and, like, what political agendas they had when they wrote that part. And it wasn't a these stories are false kind of thing. It was still a religious school. It was still, like, this is what happened. But these stories were written in certain ways with certain kind of rhetorical perspectives. Yeah. People who were in trying certain to, contexts. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and, like, it did really good about kind of being critical of it while also trying to say this is true. Um which I think is just probably a good way for anyone of any institute, be it a religious institute or corporate institute or educational institute, to always kind of think critically about what that institute is saying and why it might be saying it in a certain way. Uh, and I'm really quite appreciative of the Catholic high school I went to for like being able to do that. Um, it may have, much to their regret, turned me agnostic or atheist in the long run, but you know, it helped me think critically about this stuff in a, in a way I really appreciate. Yeah. I'm curious about your sort of experience in Catholic school and growing up Catholic. Because um, I think, like, your writing, especially Killing is Harmless, is an incredibly... Um, like, I know you say in the beginning you're, you're not trying to necessarily impose any sort of moral view on people, but I do think your writing, and not just there, not just in Killing is Harmless, but a lot of your writing is really ethical. Like, you're really thoughtful about ethics when you write. Um, and I'm curious if that... Has any of like your Catholic upbringing and, and any of that had an influence on like your 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 passion for writing in in a way that promotes a, an ethical view of, of the world? Um, probably. Um, like I guess I grew up in a Western country, like kind of greatly influenced by Christian and Catholic kind of uh, yeah. ideals. Even if I didn't go to a Catholic church, like um, or a Catholic school, like you know, Australia a lot like America is just kind of. Um, you know, all the discourse of our government and that is kind of interspersed with kind of Christian kind of symbolism and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't think of any perfect examples, but I, I can probably think of more American examples than Australian ones. But we, we still have that. Um, I'm pretty sure there's like prayers said in Parliament and stuff. Maybe maybe I'm making that up. Anyway, um, but yeah, so no, and I think, in, again, like my primary school is probably less so. Um, we don't have middle school in Australia. We go from like grade one to seven, then eight to 12. Um but again, my high school, I think, was certainly very influential. Um, my principal, when I was in my senior years, um, he was like a former, pretty sure he was a former monk, and he came and was a principal of his school. Um, but he was himself very left-leaning, and he, um, I remember in grade 12, he took us first, he took, all the, well, he took any kids who wanted to from the school to go to an anti-Iraq war, anti-invasion of Iraq protest. Uh, this was 2003. And he's like, look, if you want to go... You know, here are notes for your parents to give it, give you permission. You can come tomorrow. Um, and then he took all of grade twelve to um to see Bowling for Columbine when it came out. Um, um, but you know, he was a very devout 
Catholic guy himself. Um, but like, so yeah, so like, I guess I picked up from him and probably that school generally, I guess for more, um, the tolerant stuff you learn, um, Catholicism and Christianity teach for kind of, you know, Jesus's 11th commandment or whatever, like love one another as I have loved you and stuff and just kind of be nice to everyone. Don't be a jerk. Um, mm-hmm. and so, but it, it was never, it was probably a very different scenario than growing up in the American self. Um, you know, there was never any kind of evangelical aspect of it. I don't think it wasn't, you have to go and save other people. It was just like, here's how Jesus is to live and here's how we do this. Um, yeah. Which is probably like, so yeah, so my writing now, which is really, I guess, ethical, which is probably started from that kind of seed or that germ. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, like Helen, my current, my fiance is probably um, certainly kind of um, fermented that as well, like made me much more active in that. So now like a lot of my writing is, yeah, it comes as much probably from my Catholic upbringing as it does from kind of my arts degree at university and hanging out with lefties for my entire adult life and all that. Um, so yeah, so... I'm, I'm kind of repeating myself now, but I definitely got the kind of tolerance and accepting parts from my Catholic upbringing. Um, and I guess left behind the um, parts that were like, everyone else is evil. Uh, sure. But <laughs> thankfully I didn't go to a school that really pushed. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, that's helpful. That's fine. Um, that's good. We should probably say, oh, we should probably say that Jeffrey Yoelim said those things, right? So he's the lead, the, lead, the lead writer. So he's the writer. Right. right. Therefore, it's... But- but he, he wrote that with gameplay in mind. Well, um, it's firstly, um, I think one thing I'd like to say is, I, don't, I think subversive games, I think an important caveat, which is something like a lot of people critique Spec Ops for, um, is that subversive doesn't necessarily mean like anti-something, I don't think. Like I think Spec Ops can be like a subversive military shooter, but I don't think it's like anti-military shooter. I don't think the smartest thing to take away from yeah. Spec Ops is military shooters are bad. Um, which I think is all a lot of people thought it was trying to do, but it, but it does certainly it subverts expectations in a really interesting way. Um, but that caveat, going back to Far Cry Three and your question, um, I really liked how it started. Um, like I thought it was really clear from really early on exactly what it was trying to do. Um, and when everyone critiqued it, and Joe Harlan was like, "No, you don't understand." Like I think he missed the point because it was very obvious from like as soon as MIA starts playing over the opening kind of cutscene. It's so obvious what the game is trying to do, um, and for a while it yeah. it does it really well. Like especially in like relation to Far Cry Two, like you've got this kind of this real gamified kind of point system and numbers and experience. Like it feels like Far Cry Two except gamier, which I feel like was exactly what he was trying to do. Like this is just a game for this character. Yeah, um, and that was <laughs> and that was really cool. Um, it fell apart for me. I can't remember the exact moment, but there, there was a moment where I felt safe on the island. Like, in Far Cry 2, I never felt safe. But in Far Cry 3, once I started taking over enough outposts or whatever, I'd hear a car, and instead of jumping in the bushes, I'd just be like, oh, yeah, they're my bros. That's cool. And keep running. Uh, (laughs) And then you go to the second island, and you're just in camouflage. So it it just kind of, um, like, it started from a really strong point, but I just don't think it went anywhere with that. Um, I don't think it it kind of saw its subversiveness through. Um, I wrote about this one, Winnable, I think. And there's a moment at the end where you Sorry, spoilers for anyone listening. You know, you have to torture your brother to get closer yes, to the guy. And it's meant to be this moment where you're like, well, I would even go so far as to torture my own brother. That's how power-hungry I've become. Like, this clearly isn't about what I'm trying to do. It's just about doing mm-hmm. it. Except then you kind of cut the camera and you tell your brother, don't worry, it's me. And then he gives you permission to hit him. I think that moment he gives you permission to hit him like, is like, 
I don't know, it kind of felt like the moment of the game just wanted its cake and it wanted to eat it as well. Um, like, yeah, like it was giving know. you permission to sort of be horrible, <laughs> horrible gamer bro, dude bro, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think, I think, Rich, you may have made this argument. I think you made the argument that, um, that the, in the end, anyway, all of that kind of coalesces in a sense because I think the, in a lot of ways, the game is doing that all along. It's sort of like encouraging you to be awful gamer dude bro. Mm. Um, and maybe the ultimate subversive part, and I, I go back and forth on this, is that final choice of where you have, like, again, spoilers, but you have the choice to either, like, like go off into La La Land, right? Of, like, like I'm totally invested in this this horrible, all this all these horrible things I did, and I'm just going to, like, become one with the island or whatever. Um, or, you yeah, yourself- or you, you, you wake up from the dream, essentially, kind of, you know. Um, yeah. One. I don't know. They... Yeah, because yeah. it, it is a game about white dude bros, essentially. So it's kind of about their understanding. Uh, yeah, I was. I talked about this the other day. Like um, we, when I was at PAX, I got to see. You may have heard of this game, Brendan. Um, Never alone. Have you heard of this? Um, I've heard the name, but I don't know anything about it. It's a puzzle platformer set in like in Alaska, and it follows you play as a uh, a young Alaskan native of, from a tribe called the Inupiat people um but anyway it's just sort of like they the developers of that game really did their research about that people group they interviewed people from that tribe they invited people from that tribe into the actual development of the game to like be a part of the development team um so it's sort of like the it's polar opposite of what far cry 3 does you know with sort of its colonization stuff and like um just like that kind of south pacific vibe of the game yeah. it sort of takes this culture that's very much other to western people and i think like i i don't one of my problems with this is i feel like it doesn't do enough to make clear that it's gross the way the way you colonize that island is gross yeah you know what i mean and i don't think it calls attention to that and because of that i, I just it kind of bothered me because i feel like it didn't do enough to kind of help players there's too many people that play that game that um really like that about it and are never really called out for liking that yeah. i guess well that's a weird thing with i guess triple a games generally that are tried to be submissive they, they try to walk this line um and what i i guess what i often say is like a lot of kind of triple a video games now try to be mature in the same way i thought i was mature when i was 17 years old and started listening to Marilyn manson because you know <laughs> he, he was really yeah. he was really mature because he swore a lot and said these words mm-hmm. he wasn't meant to say um and i feel like far cry 3 kind of is guilty of this a bit, maybe not as much as some other games, but there's this weird thing AAA games do often where they, like, draw attention to how absurd they are to kind of say, look, don't worry, we know, but then don't actually yeah. do anything about that. It just kind of glorifies it rather than actually... Yeah, I feel like that was the problem with, with Grand Theft Auto V, too. Absolutely, was, yeah. Um, that, like, those games always kind of try to say, no, well, it's satire, and, uh, but satire always has a really... Sh- like, when satire's done well... Um, it always has a really important like social point to make, yeah. and I feel like those games are just kind of reveling in the fact that we live in a really broken, like racist, sexist world, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I mean, that's the difference difference between something like Five and then all of the other games. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I and, mean? Like, how, and in a way, I game. guess that game also it's worth mentioning that because I think that. To me, in a way, that game is a lot different than Far Cry 3 because I think the, like, subversive nature of it is a lot clearer to me. 
than Far Cry 3. But then again, you can play that game with... You can skip all the story elements, essentially, yeah. and just play the levels over and over again and try to score higher and higher points. Yeah. Um, which which then it's a lot less subversive, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a weird thing like Hollow Miami. It's like, I feel like I got it for what there is to get. And then I just bought it on Vita and played it again because I really enjoyed playing it. You know, it's fun yeah. to play. Um, yeah. Which then is like, is the subversiveness of it making you feel bad? Or is it just simply is the subversiveness of, it, subversiveness of it making you realize, I enjoy this, and that's really gross. Uh, yeah, and this, it was still really yeah. important that you had yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's that yeah. need to have both sides, which um, which 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 makes it really hard for a game to be deliberately not fun, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, which which is I guess why I think maybe Spec Ops spoke to me so much. What I found so interesting about it, especially when I went and interviewed um, Walt Williams in an, inter- in an interview that's on Unwinnable now as well. It's like it it's in no way a perfect game or anything, but it, and it's not even an enjoyable game for a lot of people. Like a lot of people think it's just a straight up bad game. But, like, to me, it's a game that just simply shouldn't exist. Like, Jaeger had so yeah. much trouble building it, and then, you know, 2K threw bolts at it to kind of write it. And they're halfway through it, and the people making this game hated it. They're, like, they're just sick to death of making this military shooter they were told to make. I think, as Walt said to me, is like, they came to hate the kind of people that like these games that they're making games for. So, like, it's, it's a game that actually hates its audience. Um, yeah. Whereas a game like Far Cry 3 or Hotline Miami is still concerned that you need to have fun Spec Ops couldn't give a crap about you. Like, it just... Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So from a, and, like, I guess I didn't know that stuff before I wrote the book, but I guess I kind of got that feeling from it. I guess when, when I wrote the book, I probably saw that as, yeah. like, a really kind of confident design idea to not think about the player. But really, in hindsight, it was probably just pure angsty sitting at the studio 15 hours a day, wanting to go home and just being like, F this. But, oh, that's... Um, <laughs> That's like pure art. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so I don't know. So I guess because it freed itself from the shackles of caring about the player having fun, it A, managed, I think, to, for me, be actually quite subversive, and B, didn't reach any kind of sales target. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, that. It did, do, it did badly. It did do badly, yeah. yeah. That makes me want to go play it, like, tonight again. I know. Yeah. That's crazy. But Spec Ops does that in a way. Yeah, but pretty much. Well, you, you don't really get any kind of... Yeah, like, when you start, you're just going to save some people. You're the American hero walking into this city. You're going to mm-hmm. save the day like you have in every other game. Yeah, and by the end, it's just like, didn't like did you really think walking around shooting everyone was actually going to achieve anything? Um, and, and I don't mm-hmm. think it's as straightforward as what other people say, where it's just like, it tells you to do something, then laughs at you for doing it. Like, I don't think... I, I, I don't know, to me, it's not that straightforward. It's much more making the player realise that it was absurd to ever think this was how you ever saved anyone. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so, so I don't know. I think it's much more fine-grained than that. Uh, did you uh, did you play, I'm curious, did you play um, Shadow of the Colossus? I did, I yes. guess, but Do you play that, Rich? I was just thinking, I, start, I started reading, I read, I've read most of Killing Us Harmless when it first came out, and then yep. I started reading, started reading it again today, actually, because I was thinking about the podcast, and, um, you know, I, I just remember you talking about sort of the, the transformation of Walker throughout the yep. story, and I think it's one of these games that, with, and it's one of the simplest ways to illustrate what the game illustrates, but it does it really well by just his, like, his appearance, how it changes over the course of the game, like, yep. um, anyway, I think there's an interesting parallel to Shadow of the Colossus, um, 
Yeah, I, absolutely. I just, yeah, because that the character in that game um, basically like murders the, these amazing majestic creatures um, in an attempt to like resurrect his lost love through so, sort of like this kind of questionable means of you know. Uh, well, like, you know, it's kind of this mysterious dark magic that you don't really understand and that nobody understands. But I think it's a really interesting parallel of, like, to me, that game, too, sort of forces you... But in the end, it forces you to recognize that you you did something really awful um, yeah. for the sake of, like, having this, ep- like, quote-unquote epic experience. Yeah, you know? and the music works really well in that game where, like, while you're fighting them, you get this really kind of, you know epic kind of musical score while you're climbing this yeah back and no, like every single fight it's easy to get really caught up in it and the music just mm-hmm. kind of like convinces you this is what i should be doing like i need to do this and yeah. then the second you do that final sword stab that kills him like it goes silent for a second and then you just give this really tragic character dying thing and again yeah the music does that complete 180 to like what the hell have you just done mm-hmm. um, sorry what the heck have you just done <laughs> um, and, <laughs> You're allowed. To Great. To um, game church podcast. I should have checked beforehand. Anyway, um, so it, kind of, it does that like, and then you're like, <laughs> oh my god, what have I done? That was like tragic. And then you just go and do it again, and you get caught up in it again, and you feel bad again, and you get caught up in it again. Um, it's like every level of Hotline Miami. Yeah. As well. <laughs> well, yeah, it does the exact same yeah. thing with music, with yeah. really kind of pumped up music, which is uh-huh. like screeches to a halt with that last death, and then it just forces you to walk back over it, and it's like, what have you done? Um, and yeah, Shadow of Colossus has your, for, yeah, as you said, the character's um, moral changes over time. It becomes less human. Um, I don't know, I guess some people would argue, you know, it's a kind of failure of a game's message if you still manage to enjoy it the next time and the time after that and the time after that. But um, yeah. I know, I guess to me it's not trying to teach you anything. It's not trying to necessarily change your actions rather than just make you self-aware or reflective of how you were able to get caught up in that. Yeah. Self awareness. So valuable. Um, And another example going back to PS2 days as well. I think Manhunt did it really interestingly as well. That like obscure, controversial Rockstar game where it's like a third person stealth game where you're like being forced to star in a snuff movie. And it's really, really violent. And you pretty much have to like Mm -hmm. sneak behind people. And the longer you sneak behind before you kill them, the more kind of graphic little five second cutscene death you get. And, you know, you're kind of trying to see all different deaths with different videos. And you're, you're really just performing for the snuff director that's forced you to be in this game. Um, and it's really gross and crude. Um, it's still quite a good game. But, like, it kind of makes, like, these deaths are just kind of um, uneasy. They just make you feel uneasy how gross they are. Um, but and I, I remember being, like, 16 years old playing it, um, younger than I should have been. And still, like, I would, you know, every time I would try to get the grossest death. And I would get it and I'd instantly be like, I, that, that was unnecessary. Um, and then I'll do it again. Um, and it's like, <laughs> and, and I think it, it, it is kind of like in Rockstar's own kind of ham-fisted way, it's kind of deliberately almost subversive game where like, it's kind of like, all right, you want a really violent video game from us. All right, here's one. And it just makes you feel really uncomfortable with really enjoying a game that violent. Yeah. I never heard I think it's a really good game. Um, I also just think it's a really solid third-person stealth game. Um, I've never played the sequels, so I couldn't say. Um, I might have just liked the first one because it was banned here. Like that might have, that might make it more attractive to me or something. Yeah, yeah interesting. Cool. Well, um, Brandon, for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Yeah, man. Games and yeah, yeah. If, you, if you're interested in a particular things. slant on Australian politics, <laughs> I've got yeah, I, I've learned a lot about Australian <laughs> politics from following you on on Twitter. Right. So I'm I'm very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I I want to plug something that you did recently because I just think it might help um, some of our our listeners. Um, you wrote an article called Game of Moans about the whole, um, and then some of our listeners are not even going to know what this is, but about the whole Gamergate controversy, um, yeah. which I think, and I want to plug your article because I think you did a really good job of sort of uh, wading through a lot of, of BS mm-hmm. um, and helping people get to, like, really the source of that, which I think it's really clear to me that all that whole thing is is mired in, in some pretty strong, like, hate and, um, yeah. like, uh, yeah. So anyway, but you did a good job of, I think, of helping people see that. Yeah, there are a lot of problems with games journalism, but, um, but you know, right, right. Yeah. So, so I'd recommend that uh, that to our readers, and that can be found at overland.org, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe overland.org.au. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Overland.org.au. Yeah. Yeah. So.